This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. So we are live at BNY Mellon Pershing Insight Conference in Phoenix, Arizona. I want to get right to our guest. Garinda Aluwalia is co-founder and chief executive officer at 280 Cap Markets, based in San Francisco, but on site with us here at the event. You've been so patient. Very patient, man. <laughs> Listening uh, to uh, President Trump and President Duda. First of all, I got to ask you, fixed income market, uh, the bond market, front and center as we try to figure out what's next from the Fed. But we've got these big macro issues. How do you bring that into your thinking about the outlook here? So, well, first, Carol, thank you for having me here. I appreciate it. Pleasure. And uh, I'd want to step back and answer that. Jason had earlier made the comment that, um, you know, the financial markets are so big. And, you know, what's being done here at Pershing at the conference specifically is a lot of it is around these wealth advisors and what they're doing to serve their client. Right. And so your question really has to go in that context. What, what are all these macro, with all these macro headwinds and tailwinds, how does an advisor navigate their client? And that's why they come to these conferences. They want to learn what's the latest and greatest and so on. What we're trying to do is, as it relates to the fixed income part of their portfolios, help them acquire that more efficiently. Um, and, you know, if you, to take out any jargon, it's as simple as, you know, when rates are high, 5 6%, you know, an extra 20 basis points is a rounding error. Yeah. Uh, when rates are when you're earning two or it's less, a bigger deal. And twenty basis points is very meaningful, right? Right. So that's what this is about: our business and why we started it. And technology obviously is right at the core of this. And and this is a market. We know this from a Bloomberg perspective that hasn't always been the most transparent. Hasn't always been the easiest to to, to get your arms around. You're really using technology to sort of draw people in. Tell us about that. Yeah, I think, uh, and even using the analogy of, at the, of Bloomberg, I mean, it's clearly a hundred steps, uh, uh, you know, further along. But the idea was to empower traders and salespeople to do their jobs more effectively. And they've done a fantastic job of doing that, and it resonates in the market. But that's like uh, the F-35 that was brought up yeah. in the trade discussion <laughs> right. earlier in the call. That's a very powerful engine. Um, not every financial advisor who's serving an end client is going to be able to use that kind of technology. So they may need a Cessna. Because they're right. going from point A to point B, which is a much shorter flight hop. And so you have to have the right set of tools. And ours is geared more to the wealth manager today, and it's building out those tool sets for them. So same concept of simplifying, aggregating information, and making it easy for someone to do it on their screen. Right. And that's just time, right? 30 years ago, you couldn't do it. The data sets weren't there. The technology wasn't there. And everywhere else, technology has changed how we work. There's no reason it's not going to happen here. Is technology, though, in terms of the fixed income market, is it helping to kind of squeeze out those extra, you know, percentage gains or point Absolutely. gains? Absolutely. Squeeze yeah. out a bit here and there. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's, Especially it's, in, in an environment like we are now where I think there's a lot of uncertainty about what comes next. Absolutely. I think the I take your question and just say, is there an opportunity when you look at the disparate markets that exist today uh, to create better execution? And we've looked at our own data. Uh, of doing this of six months for advisors. And you can squeeze out, if you make some assumptions, basically you're looking at a seven-year bond, you're earning 3% on that bond, let's just say. We can improve that by 16, 17 basis points, the execution quality. And that falls in the pockets of their client or the investor. And so it is meaningful movements. 
Right. Uh, we are live in Phoenix at BNY Inside Grinder. Aluwalia is still with us for another couple minutes. We're so lucky that you stuck around, Grinder. So you play such a wide variety of roles. I mean, looking at your background, you're an executive advisor to Thomas H. Lee. You've started a number of companies. Where's the white space right now? Uh, you know, we're looking around this massive hall as we've been talking about. Where's the white space right now for people in sort of fintech? Because it feels like that's where you're living. Yeah, well, you can see I've kind of voted with my feet. Yeah. And uh, when I look at the software tools, technology that's available to an advisor, I, I started at a really high level. What does a financial advisor do? Mm-hmm. There's four steps. They're prospecting. They're doing client discovery. Then they're doing planning and implementation. And then keep going through that cycle. That's what they do, and they do it really well. And they're helping a lot of Americans save for retirement and meet those goals. There's a ton of tools and technologies when you want to do the front-end marketing, the CRM tools, software that's out there, right? We saw that on the implementation side, equities, everyone loves to talk about the equity story. It's sexy, it's exciting, and people are in. Fast-moving markets, right? You're quoting them on Bloomberg every second, a ticket moves, and um, And fixed income's a little slower. And it's a huge market. Huge market. Well, I think the the fixed income markets are the second largest in the world after currencies, right? right? So. But this is a market where you haven't seen fintech play as effectively. Right. So I, I do think this is the blue ocean. Right Expecting here. more competition as people discover this? Yeah, I think it's, you know, I don't worry about competition. I think it's a good thing because it's rel- you're, you're trying to make this better for everyone. And efficiency and progress is what you're going to see with small companies, big companies. And I would say that's a good thing. So let's... 20 seconds left. Do you anticipate, though, that we are in kind of a new era and that we stay in a global lower rate environment just quickly? I'm not an economist first and foremost, right? So, you know, but I think everything has implications. This idea of tariffs, whether they happen or not, or whether the jobs come back and labor, uh, it's going to be inflation, right, uh, with those things. So that's right. my two cents. Gorinder Aluwalia, so good to catch up with you. This is Bloomberg. Yeah, I don't know whether people are in love or fallen out of love with hedge funds. There were some $3.2 trillion in assets under management at the end of last year in hedge funds. A lot, but we've got shutdowns, we've got new funds opening, we've got continued fee pressure, so much more. We know it's been a tougher environment as investors push back on things like paying fees. Uh, Mark Alderati is head of Prime Services at Pershing. He's got some thoughts on what's going on in the hedge fund industry. He's here at BNY Mellon Pershing Insight Conference. Nice to be talking with you again. Same here. So you came and you sat down and you're like, not much has changed in a year. (laughs) Talk to us about the hedge fund industry because they continue to be under pressure and yet we still see new hedge funds opening and there's still a lot of assets under management. Sure. So you see new hedge funds opening, you see other hedge funds shutting down, you see some becoming family offices. So there's a lot of change throughout the market. But I also think what we've seen a lot of in the last year is that with a kind of interesting, volatile, challenging market, people, money managers, really want to focus on their portfolio and their performance. So that leaves a lot of other things that happen within the investment community that really fall back to folks like ourselves at Pershing. So what do I mean by that? There's been a lot of um, trying to push different functions from the money managers to service providers like Pershing. And that's created kind of these two different flows. So one is, what functions can I take off of my plate as a money manager and put into a place like Pershing? And on the other side of it is, you have money managers that are looking for more and more data. How do they automate what they're doing? Right. How do they send in, how can we send in more information into them? How can they, you know, 
to use the phrase big data, how can they capture more information? You know, how can they do things in a different, more efficient way? Right. And to your point, just with, um, you know, fees, one of the ways if you're getting fee pressure from your investors, that means it's probably fee pressure downstream. And so ways of doing that, again, is to create that efficiency, whether it's operational efficiency or just ways of sort of approaching the market differently. So that's sort of the big the big change over the past year. And so, Mark, you've been doing this for a time. You've seen some cycles come and go. I do wonder, you know, this pressure, whether it's fees or, or something more existential that's going on with hedge funds, is this something you've seen before or are we in a different chapter in, in the evolution of this industry? Yeah, I think we've seen different challenges over time. I think the current challenges are slightly different. And so, the marketplace has been more difficult. There is different um, types of competitors than there used to be. So you have hedge funds, you have mutual funds, you have alternative mutual funds or liquid alternatives. You also have different investors. It used to be institutional and ultra high net worth, and now it's actually you know, moving down the chain a little bit right. to, um, to just other just mass affluent. And so there's different mm-hmm. people sort of looking at it, and those all create different needs and different challenges. Well, and it feels like there's been a segmentation too, even among the, the hedge fund sort of a either a specification or a specialization where people are really having to differentiate. It's far beyond just like, I'm a macro, I'm a long short, I'm a whatever, that people are really pressing for a a more specific strategy. So I I think you're right. I think one of the biggest challenges money managers have is how do they actually define themselves? Right. And so a lot of the old sort of names or buckets that you just mentioned don't really apply anymore. Um, So some folks are getting like very, very niche and others still want to take a much more macro Mm -hmm. approach. And a lot of it is when they're speaking to investors, how do I stand out in the crowd of the way I just defined myself? Mm -hmm. So if you go into more of like the mutual fund space, there are sort of buckets or definitions. If you look at the hedge fund space, they're not quite as clear as they are in other markets. And so I think that challenge, too, is like, what am I? You know, and is there style drift over time? How do I keep it tight? That is so on target because I feel like that used to be part of their mystique, right? Like, we don't know exactly what you're doing, but we like the returns. But it's a different world. Like, investors want more and more transparency out there. And that's why some of the other asset classes or alternatives are more attractive at this point. No, I think it's 100% correct that I think when you're, especially on the institutional side, when you're investing, you may have money invested in, pick a number, 20 different funds. And you don't want to have 20 funds that look alike. You need to actually have diversification. So if you can't define what you've invested in, you can't create the right diversification. So do we start to get more hedge funds coming out and saying, well, okay, this is what this is about? Because that's been part of their keeping some of that secret, right? To some extent. Absolutely. So I think what you wind up seeing is that um, hedge funds are doing a better job defining what they are. And when they speak to their investors or prospective investors, really having to define how they sort of stand out from the crowd, what makes them different. So if you're a long, short equity fund, how am I different than every other long short equity fund? And right. I think, again, when you're talking to investors, they want to know, are you sector specific? Are you more macro thematic? And so it does matter how you define yourself. Well, and, and your point earlier is well taken, too, that as the universe of limited partners has expanded, you know, a family office is often going to have a very different expectation or a time horizon than maybe a pension fund. They don't have that sort of annual bogey. And so they need, uh, they need and want and demand sort of a different kind of manager and a different kind of approach. I think that's right. I mean, the risk profile. So you have your risk and your return. And how do those two kind of line up with whatever your, you know, the investor's investment thesis might be. And so you're right. Some folks, you know, maybe in the pension space, they need to have a certain return because they have folks that they're actually delivering monthly checks to, which is very different than a you know, family office, which may have a much longer time horizon. And so you may wind up with you know, 
more liquid investments for folks that need mm -hmm. sort of access to money and things that, even though it's still in the sort of liquid public markets, might look more akin to private equity than, than some of the more fluid securities. All right. We're going to leave it on that note. So great to get some time with you. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Carol Master, Jason Kelly. We are live from the Phoenix Convention Center at BNY Mellon Pershing Insight Conference. Lots of financial advisors. We want to talk about one issue that is certainly front and center. Diversity, inclusion, talent pipelines, financial literacy. Our next guest is Mark Tabergian. He's CEO of Advisor Solutions, and he joins us now. Great to see you again. Great to see you. Thanks for having us. I said to you that one of the things that people are thinking about a lot, doesn't matter what company, financial sector though, uh, in particular, is their workforce. Attracting people uh, and thinking about the composition of their workforce. Diversity is something that people are talking about, and rightfully so. Yeah, they've been talking about it for a long time. Unfortunately, uh, individually, firms aren't doing enough, and the data really works against us. If you think about it, there are more advisors over 70 than under the age of 30. There's only 20, 23% of the advisors are, uh, are uh, women, and 8% are people of color, So, and 40,000 fewer financial professionals than in 2008. So I think as a, as a profession, we have a challenge in... Uh, not only attracting uh, diverse candidates, but attracting people generally. Right, and it, it comes at a time where, and you know this as well or better than we do, where the demographic demographics of the client base are changing pretty dramatically uh, as well. And so in order to really service people in a holistic way, you know, this whole sort of you can see it, you can be it kind of thing, and, and being able to connect with people uh, in a more familiar and, and holistic way is, is critical. There are a couple of thoughts on that. Penny Pennington, uh, the CEO of, uh, of uh, Benef Edwards, she said, diversity is something you can count. Inclusion is something you can feel. If you can't feel it, you can't count it. Hmm. And it's a very powerful way to think about yeah. our, our challenge in the, in the business. But, uh, but just the diversity of ideas is critical. But Mark Mariel, who was the former mayor of New Orleans, sure. At a diversity conference uh, last year, he said, you know, if you took the economic impact of black Americans, uh, it's double the economy of Russia. The economic impact of Hispanic Americans is triple the economy of Russia. Yeah. The <laughs> economic impact of Asian Americans is multiples greater than the economy of Russia. So if you just think, not that Russia is a great economy, but it's big. Right. It's really significant when you think about that. You know what's interesting? I was just, as you were talking, I'm thinking, politics is figuring this out. And I think about the last presidential cycle that we realized that there were populations that weren't being represented. And I think people are starting to target it. And the financial community has to do likewise. It, it does. And I think it's a, it's a challenge put on the individual practitioners mm -hmm. because the large firms are trading old people and the young firms aren't hiring fast enough. So, uh, so we have to change the attitude about how we develop it. Now, I chair the Workforce Development Committee for the CFP Board Center for Financial Planning. One of the things that we recognized in making this industry more compelling is to begin developing career paths where career paths didn't exist before. But we also have to think about the reputation. And just to give you an example of this, uh, this morning I was having breakfast, uh, and one of the servers here asked, what industry are you, you folks from? We said, finance. She said, ugh. 
She said, how do I find somebody reputable in this business? Wow. I just got cheated 10 years ago. It just happened this morning here right. at the conference. Right. And so you think about uh, our need to elevate our reputation. It's, it's massive. Well, if you think about the financial crisis, like we've had this conversation often, that the generation that grew up seeing you know, parents out of work or losing their homes or what have you, but seeing the financial community as a result of really kind of bringing down the financial system uh, and really the economy, that that's what they've grown up with. So how do we change that, Mark? I mean, is it more regulatory oversight? You think people will do the right thing in whatever job, and that includes the financial community, but what, what do we need to do to improve the reputation? Well, uh, I don't know that regulation does it because bad actors will exist. I think part of this is really empowering consumers uh, to make more informed choices. And this is where financial literacy actually has to become uh, more core to the school systems than ever. Uh, a friend of mine uh, talked to me about this a number of years ago, and so I adopted my school in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, in Gladstone, yeah. Michigan. And it, it, I'm very proud of what they've done. Uh, it's now the only uh, school system in Michigan that's K-12 through teaching financial literacy. And this year, uh, that school in the UP won number one and number two in the stock market game for the state of Michigan. Wow. And so this is not exactly a financial center, but they're, they're teaching the basics, and these kids are absorbing it. So when you begin empowering people, not just in how to invest, but how to make financial choices, what they begin to realize is the choices you make are almost as important as the money you make. And how do you think of this in a way that allows you to take control, evaluate the people who you're doing business with, and knowing whether something doesn't smell right? Well, and part of it, I would imagine, is just helping kids and then as they get older and older, not be intimidated by this, right? And see it as an attractive way and a, a reachable way to, to pursue a career. How do you help sort of fill that pipeline with the right types of people at the you know, sort of secondary and, and college level? Yeah, so uh, you mean with the students? Yeah. Yeah, so uh, this this really becomes the way in which we have to think about the curriculum. Unfortunately, schools aren't well-funded, right. particularly public schools. So we have to think about how we're going to address this more as a life skill that they yeah. have to develop. Uh, but I think the other way to persuade schools and school districts to support it is going back to your original question on, is this a good career? So the framing of this career is not about making money. The framing of this career is how do you impact the lives of others. Right. Help people. And when you think in terms of you're intellectually stimulated, you have a degree of independence, you're rewarded well, and you impact the lives of others, just add long walks on the beach. It's a great personal <laughs> ad. So. No, but I do think about uh, financial literacy. I am such a big proponent. It upsets me that it's not that kids from kindergarten everywhere should be learning and I don't know whether you need something like a Khan Academy to be doing courses online or something where kids are getting the education because I think just like you take care of health care, insurance, education you know financial literacy has to be a part of your life so that you have the skills to ask the right questions, to interview the right financial advisors so that you are equipped to make the right decision, especially since companies aren't doing pensions anymore like you are more in control or responsible for the money you have for retirement. better or worse. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I was struck by this uh, when, when I granted additional money to the school. The students uh, presented to me ideas as to how they would do it. And so nine teams presented. Three of the teams said, we wish you would do a program like this for our parents. And so it's, it's really profound when you see it. I think that we have to carry this discussion to uh, more than investing in insurance and really dealing with the fundamental choices where people can be 
thinking about life, like purchasing groceries, leasing a car, getting an apartment, all those things that really make a difference in how I can relate to it at an early age. And with very practical experiences, we can be transformative in how we give people ideas like they do on nutrition or exercise, right. financial well-being is critical as well. It's, it's all part of a lifestyle. You know, lifestyle That's choices. We're, we're, we're talking about this so much. All right. Uh, Mark Tversion, Chief Executive Officer of Pershing Advisor Solutions, here with us in Phoenix. So we talk a lot about how technology is really transforming the world at large, and it definitely is making its impact on the financial community. There's a good side to it, but there's also concerns in terms of cybersecurity. It's all challenging. Michelle Feinstein is Director of Technology at Pershing. She joins us live at BNY Mellon's Pershing Insight Conference here in Arizona. I like that. It's all challenging. <laughs> it's all challenges everywhere it? you look. It really is. It's, yeah. a, it's a tough environment for firms in our industry. Uh, there's so much they're trying to change at the same time. I like to say it's a tsunami of change, um, you know, changing client expectations, changing the way they manage wealth, yeah. and then changing business models. And so a question I often get engaged with clients about is where do you invest first? Right. Um, it takes a lot of money, a lot of effort, and a lot of special talent. What do you tell them? So, you know, I first try to work with them and say, hey, you know, if you could only invest in one area and you're going to get the most leverage out of, that, out of that area, what would it be? And oftentimes the response I'm getting is help us control the data. So a lot of our firms have no idea what data do they have, um, what should they do with it, how do they protect it. And so if they can solve that problem first, then they can move on to some of these more kind of sexier front end, you know, pieces. So let's talk about the protection piece, because that's the subject of a panel that, that you're moderating here. We talk about mm-hmm. it all the time. I feel it's like it's, if you pulled a thread through our show uh, over the course of a year, we would keep coming back to that. We even hosted uh, a show uh, at the 9-11 Memorial mm-hmm. uh, last year, because cyber really is yeah. one of the, the biggest areas. Financial services seems to be kind of a, a leading edge to this, but what advice do you give people in terms of that defense piece? So I'll, I'll talk to you and give you a little sneak peek on how right. we organize this panel for tomorrow. We have uh, one speaker that focuses on doing cyber hygiene and education and tabletop exercises because her point of view, her name is Maria Christina Hayden, is why would you wait to see how your firm's going to react till it happens, why don't we go ahead and do some scenarios and train you on how to react so you're prepared. So we're going to be giving a lot of advice there. I love that. Cyber hygiene. Cyber hygiene. Her job literally has war games in the title. That's right. Her title is the head of cyber war games. I love that. And what she does is she works with different lines of business inside our organization, and she's also starting to go on the road and advise firms and wealth management how to do the same thing, how to conduct these exercises. The second big part of the conversation is going to be with a legal counsel and a CISO on the panel. And it's about states like New York and California and many different states starting to introduce their own versions of laws around how to protect data. The challenge is the firms don't know how to understand what are they being asked to do. Meanwhile, they're trying to use machine learning, create analytics for advisors. But at the same time, they're like, is the data safe? Mm-hmm. And so it's introducing the need for data privacy officers and data analysts that understand how to use the data and how to protect it. So it's a big, big issue. I know, Michelle, we talked with you about some of these issues last year. What's changed in the last year? I think there's just an acceleration of what's happening in the marketplace. So what we always talk about is, you know, our clients are measuring us against the consumer experiences that they have every day. 
that's in the good way, but mm-hmm. it's also in the bad way, which is if there is a cyber attack happening with some other company outside wealth management, the first question inside wealth management is, is that going to affect us? Right. How are you protecting us from that? So there's been a huge accelerated focus on all these emerging technologies. They present a lot of opportunity but they can present risk. And so risk has become a big area that firms have to focus on. And so flipping over to the opportunity side, what is the most exciting thing that you see in terms of leveraging technology, as they say, in wealth management? Yeah, I would say when I think about the goals that they're trying to strive for, one of the top ones coming up is how do you help advisors and firms scale, Mm. gain more capacity, work faster, do more with fewer humans. So let's use the word human for a minute. Uh, So advanced technologies like robotics and machine learning and AI, to me, those are going to present some of the most valuable opportunities going forward because firms are starting to look at use cases and say, does a human need to do this task? Does a human need to analyze this data? Could robotics or AI do that? The other opportunity is, does it need to be the advisor that's speaking to you at that moment? Or could a chatbot actually answer your question? Mm. And when it gets deep enough, then the advisor gets involved. Okay, so you know what the question is. Am I going to all be, you know, people within the financial community, are we going to be replaced? So, you know, what's the the balance there? So what I would say in all the panels, if you happen to pop into a bunch of them, what you're going to find is it's not about replacing anyone. This is about augmenting the value that an advisor can bring into the planning conversation with a client. All this technology, this is, these are just tools, tools to enable the advisor mm-hmm. to personalize the experience yeah. for you versus for me. Uh, you know, it used to be said that only the younger generation wanted to use technology. That's not true. We had a firm recently that rolled out online new account opening with e-signature. The first person to open account was 75 years old. So, you know, I may want some technology or I might, might want to use digital advice and then the next client you're servicing doesn't. So the challenge for advisors is they cannot have a one-size-fits-all model any longer. It's all personalized. It's like, personalized and it. it's multiple service models. Yeah. That's right. Well, and it also feels like, and I've had this experience with, with our financial advisor, the idea is that like he's using technology to spend essentially more time to get to know me as a human. Yeah. You know, right. And that he's spending a lot less time sort of working on the mechanics and actually developing our relationship, dare I say. So in our industry, we refer to that as behavioral analytics, right? He's using the power of data in a new way and saying, oh, and this gets a little big brother, right? I can study your life events. I can study based on changes in how you're investing, how you're withdrawing, potentially what you're looking at on social media. And I can start to get informed before you even tell me that you're going to get married, you're going to have a child, your son's about to start college. The creep factor is, um, will the client be comfortable right. yeah. with you introducing the That's conversation and with instead Jason, of them? He spends too much money on sneakers. So, Carol, as we continue to try and figure out what are the machines and what are the humans doing mm-hmm. when it comes to the world of wealth management, got another expert here with us in Phoenix. That's Mike Everett. He is Vice President of Business Development at MyVest here with us at the BNY Mellon Pershing Insight Conference. Mike, great to have you with us. Nice to be here. All right. So one of the things we were talking about before we came on air is you're sort of a bi-coastal guy between the East Coast <laughs> uh, and Silicon Valley. Help us understand where that nexus is between sort of robo-advisors writ large, but also a, a pretty high-touch business in wealth management. Yeah, so that's an interesting topic. Uh, when we think of, uh, of robo-advice, it's, it's a really kind of a, a manifestation of a, of a large change that's going on kind of in the industry. 
uh, Robo Advice was originally about you know a digital experience. Yeah. Uh, but we think it's more about it's all about personalization, mm-hmm. and it's really what's the service model that an individual investor wants to have? Do they want a full service advisor? Do they want to have a completely online solution, or do they want somewhere in between? <clears throat> and what we're seeing is that uh, the original foray into to, to Robo, if you will, was uh, all about you know completely digital. Yeah, and as we leave seen, me alone, I'll, I can figure it out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I, I think what we've seen in reality is that that uh, that hasn't perhaps as played out as everybody had anticipated. And now firms have retrenched and are starting to figure out, okay, how do we bring the value of the advisor into the equation and still provide a great digital experience for the investor? Well, tell us a little bit about the gro- or the changes that we've seen in robo advisors. I mean, I feel like there's a lot of uh, misconceptions about what robo advisors really are and what they do today. I, I think that's probably true. I think the question is: is just like so. A lot of them are, are very much about you know just just you know purely digital advice. Here's a here's yeah. a, a product you know at, uh, it's essentially a, a digitally packaged product. I think the next phase is you know we talk about personalization mm-hmm. again. Is how do you deliver that personalized solution? And it may be a different service model. So one investor within a firm may have a purely robo solution. Another investor may have a hybrid solution that embraces mm-hmm. an advisor. And we think that's really kind of how the, the, the industry is evolving. And the next step is really, okay, now how do you embrace kind of the uh, personalization in the wealth management services that are being offered? And that's where we think uh, goals-based wealth management is kind of the, the, the next iteration. Goals-based? Yeah, you... goals-based wealth oh, management. Oh, goals-based. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, and here's where I want to be and blah, 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 and here's what I want to do. Right. And so when you think about what people are willing to sort of give up to a machine, a robot, a robo, uh, as the case may be, you know, what is it, what, what's the line, generally speaking, understanding that people are, you know, all different and, and have different uh, hopes and yeah. dreams. What are they willing to be like, yeah, that's fine. I'll, I'll let the machine handle it. I, I think a lot of it is, is much more about what do they need at whatever point in their mm-hmm. life cycle, their financial life cycle they're at. Okay. You know, it, you know, some people it's very simple. You know, I just need an appropriate investment solution. Right. I don't need really advice. Uh, <clears throat> others who are, you know, just tell me how to alloc- give, give me a right. model that give I me an can asset follow. allocation yeah. and just make sure it uh, sticks to it and uh, you know charge me a, a, a low fee. Yeah. Uh, others are, you know, people, listen, the world is complex. Yeah. You know, when you start thinking about households and, you know, the complexity. Well, sending kids to college it. and things like that, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. Yeah. Retirement. You know, how do I pull all that off? And and, and that's where I think the, the advice component comes in and where we're starting to move to these hybrid You models. know, Jason, I talk a lot about with different businesses, this whole idea of lifestyle, whether it's wellness, you know, that it's not just I want to lose weight or work out. And certainly this is kind of the, that area but that you become a part of someone's life. And I do feel like in terms of the financial community, I think we need to think about it differently, that you do have to come in at an earlier stage. Like I think about when I got my first credit card in college. Like, you know, you need to kind of start earlier. And you're right, you might not need so much attention or you just need a couple things to check in on, but it's going to grow. And I do think somehow we need to rethink that it's not until like maybe you buy a house or get married or you have kids and you do a will. At least. But if you start earlier, we kind of grow into it. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the, the great things about, you know, digital advice is yeah. that you're starting, the, the awareness is starting early. You know, it, it can never be too early to start in, in investing. And <clears throat> I think that, that where we're going is if you start early, you're positioning yourself properly right. for dealing with those more complex things that come along. Right. And I think that's where kind of the industry is kind of shifting to. Is it's like, okay, now we kind of get you started, but now how are we going to handle the more complex things? And that transition of that investor over time. 
And creating healthy patterns, right? Absolutely. And, and what do we all know? It's like it's investing is, is really, from an investor's perspective, is more emotional right. than, uh, than mathematical. Yeah, absolutely. And we as an industry always focus on the math. And right. I think digital advice is now starting to focus on the emotional aspect of it. A little bit, little bit of humanity creeping in. Not a bad thing. For <laughs> yeah, sure. not yeah at all. exactly. All right, Mike Everett, Vice President of Business Development over at MyVest, Thank here you. with us at BNY Mellon's Pershing Insight Conference in Phoenix. Yeah, the financial industry really taking in a lot of new things that uh, are impacting it. A lot of it has to do with technology, AI, robots. They haven't taken over the financial advisory industry yet, but they are playing a bigger role. Ram Nagapan is Chief Information Officer at Pershing. He's with us here at uh, the Insight Conference. Nice to see you again. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me here. You know, I love when we have these conversations because like, it's kind of like a year goes by. It goes by kind of quickly. And I yeah. do wonder about like what's changed and what I keep hearing from everybody is, yep, there's more technology, there's more AI, it's just happening faster than we all thought. Yeah. Yes, it is exponentially growing. There's no doubt about it. But you said it's going to take over the world. No, it won't. It will augment the world. It's going to help a lot for the advisors. There's so much technology that's coming. We have to selectively apply, but there's tremendous, tremendous. The My best and the most favorite thing is, you know, simplifying security, meaning you all use what passwords. What do you mean by that? What do you mean? I mean, you use user ID and password. I hope yeah. you don't write it down anywhere, right? Do you write it down? She does. She does. Okay. So it's, 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 it's about, and also we also ask you a lot of challenge questions yeah. and then send you a pin to do. This yeah, is yeah. all the creation of technology, but the experience is very bad. Right. So what we want to do is biometric is coming. It's, 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 it's actually going to help us. You know, you just look at it, your facial recognition, and it'll let you in. You don't even remember anything. I'm really glad you brought that up because I do feel like, you know, I finally upgraded my iPhone in the last six months or so. And that was a game. It felt like a game changer for for me. Just being able to pick up my phone, it recognizes me. And I do feel like that's where we're going. How much, though, should we worry? I'm always nervous about this, about the privacy element to that. How much are we giving up in order to get these new technologies? Well, you should worry a lot more. Yeah. Okay. Because the way in which the technology is growing and the way in which the security and the privacy is actually, you know, kind of protecting you is kind of lagging. Yeah. So, uh, so, yeah, you should be concerned before you start using new technology. Make sure it is being provided by the right vendor with all the securities and everything. That's very important. Otherwise, the data could be compromised or something could happen. Yeah. But this is like a catch-up game, you know. Uh, people are serious about security. People are serious about data privacy. So when you talk about connected world, they're going to make sure that's secure as well. But it is something that you have to really be cautious before you use. Well, Ram, is it always going to be a catch-up world? Because, right, as soon as we figure out something in terms of cybersecurity concerns, you know, the bad folks are up to another one. Like, is yeah. it always, that's just going to be kind of the world we live in? Yeah, you, sh- you should be, you know, extremely cautious that you should think that the, ba- the bad folks, bad, actual, actors, bad yeah. actors actually are more technically savvy as well. So you've got to be very careful about it. So the investment right now we make on cyber and privacy is huge because this is like a zero-day defect or mm-hmm. zero-day attack that could happen. So you have to be concerned. To answer your question is technology is great. It needs to be applied right, but you also have to have all the privacy guards around it. 
I, I want to ask you a little bit about your background because I was fascinated by the fact that, you know, you worked on DLJ Direct, you know, our Wall Street audience, like you say the word DLJ and sort of takes them back to these like halcyon days of, of Wall Street. You know, you went Unless along, they're 25. Right. No <laughs> and they're like no DL offense. West. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, and obviously followed that through to, to CS as well. You worked on some of the earliest sort yeah. of iterations of technology yeah. on Wall Street. How far have we come, especially from the executive level, in understanding how to implement that uh, into the world of investing? Oh, a lot, lot far off. Every company now, even financial company, think they're a technology company. Right. Yeah, they, they have come a long way. Uh, in that. So uh, adoption of technology to when it comes is relatively shrinking. And there's a need that, that needs to be adopted and implemented a lot faster across any verticals. Well, and I also would imagine, keep me honest here, that your job as a chief information officer is a lot more important in a company like yours than maybe it was 20 years ago. Like, <laughs> but, like 20 years ago, they were like, yeah, that guy, like he knows a lot about computers. But now you are really fully integrated into the strategy yeah. of the company. But I, I wish, I wish the case, yeah. but, <laughs> but it's not. Every CEO of the company thinks they are a CIO. Ah, interesting. <laughs> so. Interesting. They know what's around the corner. They don't yes. have to, they don't need yeah. you to tell Everyone them. Everyone thinks they are technologists. Yeah. So it is good. It is good because it's catching up. Yeah. Everyone needs to be an expert. Then only we can actually do certain things very well. Everybody so. thinks they're good on the radio too. It makes our job harder. <laughs> you know, I'm going to be hosting a panel tomorrow. And it's all about future-proofing your business. And, you know, part of the discussions we're going to have is, you know, the visibility of what's coming down the road. Who are the folks that you look to for cues in terms of what the future holds? And what's interesting in the financial industry, it's not your usual subjects. It's not your peers, but it's often Amazon or Google or somebody else. Tell me a little bit about that. That that is actually true because you get inspired by many different things. It's not within your same vertical. You know, it's about connecting dots. For you, for us to really do, we have to go outside and look at it. So, for, you know, like Amazon, Google, like just, I was just listening to SpaceX going around 30 minutes around the world. I was like fascinated. Yeah. I mean, imagine what could happen when people can fly around the world in 30 minutes. So it is amazing. So we learn from other industry. We just have to figure out how to take that and apply it for our industry that we work on. Right. What's the biggest new idea that you've heard about? Because I'm sure people are pitching you all the time about this is going to be the revolutionary thing within the wealth management business or within the money business overall. What what has sort of like caught your attention, um, even if it's fantastical? Well, I, I think it's machine learning. Yeah. I would say the artificial intelligence and the branch, which is machine learning, used to be just a book we could just go to school and study about it, but that's not the case anymore because the tools, techniques that are available make it more practical to implement. So with the amount of data and other things that we have, we can actually apply this and make huge insights and help our industry. So that's a real... Um, but what does it mean, like, I don't know, Ram, I think about this too, right, in three years or five years, what does it mean that we might be doing very differently within the financial industry and, and, your, and your world? Meaning a lot of things, it's going to help you, it's going to assist you, proactively it's going to tell you. See, mm-hmm. you as an investor, you go through certain life stages, right, and you need certain things. These technology is going to come and tell you what you should do. Which is brilliant. It's like a pop-up ad, right? Wait, yeah. you've looked at this before. No, Into your I, brain. Well, I'm, I'm, simple, I'm making it very simplistic, but that whole idea, well, you looked at this before. Maybe you're interested in this. Yeah. How great that somehow right, this, yeah. you should be thinking about this financially. Yeah, meaning you know, when, you, when you talk about life stages, you, you, you know, when you have kids, colleges, moving to different right. places, retirement, it's, it's like 
There's plenty of use cases. Right. All right. Uh, really a treat to catch up with you. Ram Nagapan is the chief information officer at Pershing. He joined us, one of our hosts here in Arizona, BNY Mellon's Pershing Insight Conference. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.